0: Hello and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 155, recorded on September 20th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm
1: Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. And we start this week with a brand new shiny GNOME. Yeah, there's quite a lot of GNOME news this week, but yeah, 3.38 Orbis has been released. Lots of small improvements that add up to a pretty good GNOME release. Absolutely. This is the result of six months of hard work by the Gnome community.
0: 27,000 changes, 901 different contributors. And for users of the desktop, there's a lot of quality of life improvements. I'll tell you the couple that jump out to me is the revamped screen capture app is great. They've redone the way screen recording works using Pipewire now. That's really awesome to see that because you know I'm a big Pipewire fan. We just recently did a update on Pipewire with the developer in Linux Unplugged 3.70 and just totally refreshed my excitement for the way Pipewire is going. So it's great to see efficiencies built into Gnome now, just thanks to the hard work that's gone into Pipewire. But I'll tell you the one that surprised me, Joe. This time around, I decided to spend a little time with Gnome Maps. And I got to say, I really like, and I think they're using OpenStreetMap, I really like the way it displays street labels and highway labels, it is clearer and easier to read than Google Maps, and it's nice having it in a native app. And I've I've never given Maps really a fair shake. I just thought, oh, this is interesting, but unless I was using this on a phone, I don't really get it. But now, when I was trying to like research a route and stuff, I just found it the easiest to read and the fastest because it's right there on my device. I,
1: I actually really like it. I've been using it on Fedora 33 for a couple of weeks. For me, what stands out are the little changes they've made like adding restart as an option in the system menu and allowing you to put the battery percentage next to the icon. It's just those little things that GNOME 3 is now so mature that they can focus on adding those little details to it and tweaking it in little ways to just polish all of the rough edges off. I like the ratio we're getting
0: with these releases. There is a solid ratio of backend performance improvements that are still in that noticeable category, which if you think about, oftentimes software improvements for performance are really minor. And their net effect can sometimes be felt, but individual fixes aren't typically felt. But we are still in that phase with GNOME Shell where individual fixes can still be felt. And that's exciting because as an end user, I know that each release gets a little bit better. But then you mix in the UI improvements, the quality of life improvements with that, and I think you get a good ratio. And it makes the desktop kind of compelling for somebody like me who's been on Plasma for a while. I'm looking at this thinking, when it ships in the distros I end up using, I may actually switch back to GNOME with this release. Also in part because... GNOME Web is becoming a more usable secondary browser for me. I have my primary browser. I have three browsers. (laughs) I just got so many accounts that I log into. I got like work browsing, personal browsing, and fun browsing, you know, or just like I want to have a web page up, or maybe this is just an inbox. And that's where the tertiary or secondary browser comes in. And GNOME Web is kind of getting there for me. There's been a number of improvements in this cycle. And I can't believe I'm actually saying this,
1: but it's kind of appealing to me. I did play around with the applications grid and how you can reorder it now and you can drag icons on top of each other and make folders. Although I found that a little bit buggy. Like once I'd made a folder, I had to go back to the desktop and then back into the application grid for it to work. This was on the daily image of Ubuntu 2010 though, so I'm not sure exactly where that bug lies. Hopefully it'll be fixed by the time it comes out. But I do like that customization because GNOME traditionally hasn't been that customizable. So anything that adds customizability is going to be good in my book. True. And while we're talking about issues
0: with 3.38, keep in mind this one also ships with a new tracker. That's the file system indexer. This could be fine, but it also could have some performance trade-offs. I I have not properly tested this yet. I'm not saying that it does. I'm saying this is an area that requires further testing and monitoring here at JB, and then I'll be able to report on the full impact. But it's going to take a little bit because you got to build up this index, you got to use it for a while. So this is one of those things where Performance implications of this might not be felt until weeks into usage of 3.38. However, the project seems to be pretty happy about it, and they say some of the major improvements in Tracker 3 is that the search engine and database make the Flatpak application sandbox more secure by allowing control over what kinds of data your apps can search and query, so you can have a little more control there as well. Or, and potentially, as an end user, I would think you could just turn it off and say, Tracker can't index this app at all,
1: if that's your preference. But, you know... I tried this out on my little Vivo book, which is pretty old. I think it's like a second generation i3, so it's really not very powerful. And it did feel a bit sluggish. But then I logged out, changed the session to Zubuntu, and it was much faster. I know, okay, maybe that's not the target hardware for it, but it's still, for all the performance improvements, it's still not going to compete with something like XFCE.
0: Do you think you perceive just the rendering time, like animating things in and out as a performance difference where I would assume an XFCE there there
1: is no fade in or
0: fade out of menus of any such. It's just as fast as it can render it to the
1: screen. That could be it, possibly. It could be just a feeling. But even websites seem to be quicker, as if there was just more resources to go around. Because this laptop I'm talking about, it's an old i3. It's only got four gigabytes of RAM, not upgradable. So you really need something light, and I, it could be perception. I don't know. I didn't do any benchmarks, but I just went back into XFC and just felt much more at home, and just things just felt much quicker.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I could see there's probably not only your experience with it and your familiarity with it, but I could see on a lower-end system the GPU's doing less stuff. Maybe it does render things a little faster. For me, um, I'm I'm comparing it to Plasma as my daily driver, but I'm also very familiar with Gnome Shell. And so I see this as a performance improvement (laughs) from where I've been at, Uh, (laughs) which is kind of funny. So that's my experience is like, oh, this is great.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sure on my 10th gen i5 desktop, it would be absolutely fine. But I wanted to test it on some older hardware to see how these performance improvements have worked. And I think it is faster than it once was, but it still just can't compete with desktops that are just older fashioned, I suppose. I'm curious what
0: your older-fashioned preference thinks about the new Gnome versioning scheme. So get ready for this. The next version of Gnome, due to be released in March 2021, will be Gnome 40.
1: Well, one thing is it's going to stop people saying 3.38 when they mean 3.38. So that's good. <laughs> and I think that it ultimately makes more sense. At first, I thought, this is ridiculous. What are you doing? But then... If you actually read what Emmanuel Bassi says about this in his post on the GNOME discourse, you realize that it does make sense because I was expecting GNOME 4 to be when they changed to GTK 4. But what he's saying is that they don't want to have huge changes happen at specific milestone numbers. They want it to be much more incremental and they don't want to have a huge change like from GNOME 2 to GNOME 3, which was just a complete paradigm shift. They want to gradually introduce things. And making it 40.1.2.3 makes more sense to do that, I think.
0: Yeah, that's a compelling argument. I will admit my reaction was also sort of like, what the hell? And then my second reaction was, have they talked to the OpenSUSE folks who are trying to undo
1: the 42 versioning scheme
0: that they came up with? Like, maybe they should uh, synchronize.
1: Don't (laughs) even get me started on OpenSUSE. I could not tell you what version they're on of anything. I'd have to look it up. At least with GNOME, it was obvious that this is 38 now, and you know that the even numbers are stable releases, the odd numbers are development releases, But Emmanuel makes the point in this post as well that those even odd numbering things don't really make any sense anymore because everything's developed with continuous integration and stuff that no one's really using the development releases anymore. No, the more and more of the world is moving to rolling. Rolling or, you know, (laughs) CI. It is, I know. (laughs) I'm just just teasing you a little bit. (laughs) Honestly, I think you've got to read this post because he does lay it out in such logical detail. And you might be thinking, no, that's just ridiculous if you only read the headline like I did. And it sounds like you did as well. But I was convinced by this. And he says in that post as
0: well, we're not changing the way GTK is versioned. So that kind of when you realize, OK, yeah, that would have been confusing to have GNOME 4 and GTK 4, but not really have them be one and the same and not have them connected. He preemptively answers in this post to his question This is nonsensical. (laughs) Why do you want to change the versioning scheme at all? It's just numbers. Uh, And his answer is, numbers, like words, have meaning and tell a story. With a change in the versioning scheme, we wish to communicate the fact that GNOME doesn't see major versions of the development platform as the driving force behind major changes in the user experience. And that radical changes to the user experience are going to be introduced progressively so that we can refine and iterate them over time instead of dumping them in our user's lap. So what this really means for end users of GNOME Desktop is in March 2021, what it says in the GNOME version in the About section of GNOME Control Center will say 40. (laughs) That's really the end
1: user impact here. (laughs) Yeah, and there won't be a huge change when GTK4 comes. They're going to try and make it less of a huge upsetting change. Maybe this
0: is more reflective of the position Gnome has as a bit of a workstation OS on almost every OEM system that ships with Linux right now. Well, yeah, and every big distro that's shipping a desktop is shipping Gnome. But also making this workstation grade is finally addressing the extensions. I think there's a clear market for Gnome Shell extensions. They add clear utility and value to my desktop experience, and it seems many others And so there is a bit of an initiative to reboot the project's approach to extensions.
1: Yeah, and they're calling it Extensions Rebooted. What is Extensions Rebooted? It is an attempt to address the myriad of issues around the Shell extension ecosystem. Primarily, they want to build a process around how extensions are accepted into the extensions website and how they are supported. Rather than being the free-for-all that it has been, they want some order out of the chaos.
0: And I don't know if this is manifesting so much as like, here's a stable GNOME extensions API for you to use, but it may manifest as proper documentation on how extensions work and the reasonable expectations to be an extensions developer, how to participate in the GNOME extensions community, a CI pipeline that has a virtual machine on the back end that can spin the desktop up in multiple versions and test these things, centralizing extensions for break testing on the GNOME GitLab space, and potentially maybe even creating a forum for extension developers and extension writers to work together for a GNOME release cycle. They all kind of go off into their own individual extension islands right now and then just rush to update. And there's some collaboration, but not nearly as much as there could be. And if maybe the project could even facilitate just those things, I could see that potentially
1: going a really long way. Yeah, just starting the conversation and getting people together could be enough to at least improve the situation where you're not worrying whether your extensions are going to break every update. Yeah,
0: yeah, very much so. And sharing some of that work to get the extensions working with the next release could be a huge relief for the community. And if this initiative really, like you say, does nothing other than just get these individual developers talking to each other and collaborating, that may itself just be a success and improve the situation on GNOME. I mean, if I had a checklist of things I'd love to see, it would be everything we just discussed, and also, here's a stable API for you to use. We just might not be there, and maybe I'm just naive, but it seems like that would be fantastic. But absent of that, all of this initiative seems like it really could get us a long way to improving that experience, which, as a potential switcher back to GNOME Shell, making sure the extensions I choose stick around really matters to me, because I have put a ton of work into whittling down the ones I use to just the essentials and the ones I stick with I really want <laughs> I really want and I always know in the back of my mind it's a risk that they could go away
1: with the next release yeah I always worry about that when I'm using Gnome every day yeah <laughs>
0: No, you're more worried about what's going on with Chromebooks. How do you think you say this one? La lacrosse,
1: La carose? La curos?
0: <laughs>
1: I think I would say lacrosse, as in the game. Oh, okay. You uh, have those sticks with the baskets on them, maybe.
0: Yeah, I would prefer it to be LaCroix, which I wish I had right now. <laughs> but uh, this this kind of has been spotted by 9to5Google,
1: who caught changes in the upstream Chrome OS code, right? Yeah, this has kind of been filtering through various news sites with different people picking up on different aspects of it over the last couple of weeks. But it caught my attention this week. And the crux of it is that Google are in the process of decoupling Chrome the browser from Chrome OS. And that means that they can be updated independently.
0: So what Google is doing is creating a Linux desktop that runs a web browser application.
1: Yeah, rather than it being completely baked into it, right like we saw with Firefox OS where you could only update the browser by updating the whole system, which didn't make any sense. But with Google's frequent updates with Chromebooks, that's not really been a problem up until now. but maybe they're thinking longer term here that once they stop supporting a particular Chromebook, the OS doesn't get any updates, but they can at least update the browser potentially, if it's decoupled. That has to be part of this. Some Chromebooks,
0: you know, eight years of support. That's a long time to update the OS. So I could also see wanting to decouple that just for testing purposes and and shipping purposes. But something else that's kind of interesting in this story is part of what's making this possible for Googs to do with a fully accelerated setup the way they want is utilizing Wayland. So in this new, separated Linux distro with a Chrome browser on top of it, all of the native 3D accelerated experience that they guarantee on a Chromebook today is
1: going to be delivered with Chrome on Wayland. Yeah. When I was reading this, it was almost like I could hear your bell ringing in my head when I saw that. I thought, hmm... This means that Chrome, which is the most popular browser, and let's face it, is very well used on Linux, not by me personally as a full-time browser, but nevertheless, it's still installed. But it means that Chrome on Linux is going to get first-class support from Google. They're going to really care about this on Wayland as well. This is good news for the Linux desktop, if you use Chrome. And I have to caveat that. Obviously, there are a lot of people who will only use free software and default to Firefox. But I think there's a lot of people out there on the Linux desktop running the Chrome browser. And this is very good news for those people.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that you could look at this as potentially Google acknowledging that there is a important division of users that they want for their browser that are on the Linux desktop. And the best way to deliver... The best version of Chrome is to focus on the Linux desktop app and then ship that on their Chrome OS distro. They note in their lacrosse documents that they do expect there to be a slight performance impact by this change because instead of it all being one integrated piece where the browser is literally integrated with their display manager, Chrome browser will have to use APIs to now communicate with its Chrome host OS. And so they warn of maybe a one to two millisecond skew in performance. <laughs> Now, I don't know really at the end of the day how will you even know if you're a Chrome OS user this has happened. It may just be one day Chrome OS updates and they've just separated the two and there's there's really no obvious front-end user experience to it. But I, I agree with you. I think this is... Great news for Chrome users of Linux. And to me, it suggests that Google sees a larger market here that they need to address and that their current half-assed approach to Chrome on Linux is insufficient. And this is them getting their game together for the Linux desktop. And that, to me, is even a louder signal than this what seems to be a much
1: overlooked move for Chrome OS. I disagree. I'm afraid. I don't think they particularly care about the Linux desktop. I know that it's growing and it's a valuable segment of the market because there's a lot of developers and IT professionals and all the rest of it using Linux. But I think there are far, far more people using Chrome OS. And I think that it's much more of a sort of happy byproduct that it's going to be good for the Linux desktop. I don't think that was forefront in their mind at all. I think it was all about Chrome OS and making that easier to update and support longer term. Maybe. That is extremely
0: possible. The one thing that gives me pause with that is They knew going in to building these Chromebooks and building Chrome OS and signing up for eight years of support, they knew this would be a problem. Those engineers at Google are very clever. And so they've now decided to fundamentally change the way they architect that OS in a radical way. And it's a a pretty big shift. And something's driving that. It's either the technology to enable that only now recently exists, Wayland, or They've had a rethink of how they're treating the Linux ecosystem in general, and they just want to, forgive the saying, essentially kill two browser birds with one browser stone. Maybe. Maybe. Linux.ting.com. What is Ting? It's simple wireless. Just $6 a month plus your usage on top of that. What I love about it for me is I'm here at the studio pretty much all the time. Maybe it's a problem. And then I head home and it both locations. I'm on Wi-Fi. Why would I pay for data when I'm not using it? And I'm pretty good at syncing stuff to my phone, too. So that's also, like, for the tech crowd a leg up. You pay for what you use, a fair price for however much you talk, text, and data you use. They have nationwide coverage, three different carriers, coast to coast, you can choose from. I currently am on Verizon, but in the past, T-Mobile was better for where I sat, but I'm in a new location now. And something I love about Ting is no contracts. They don't lock you into a commitment. You could try Ting risk-free. Start by going to linux.ting.com. You'll get a $25 service credit or $25 towards a device. And they have a really easy way for you to check your phone. When you go to linux.ting.com, there's a check your phone link right there. Just put in your information and that'll give you a pretty good snapshot of your starting position with Ting. And then once you do sign up, because I think you'll probably want to when you look at the pricing, you're in complete control. You can see your usage at a glance. You can set usage alerts, which is really handy for kid devices. Think about that too for family members who are not heavy phone users, but you want them to stay connected. Ting is Perfect. I'm looking at you, Mom. And people love using Ting because the customer support is there when you need it. That dashboard makes things simple, and they have a bunch of great devices to choose from. From a SIM card by itself, all the way up to the Galaxy S10, down to a flip phone. They have the flip phone. You can also get the iPhone SE directly from Ting. But I think a lot of the people in our audience, they bring a device. Because then you can take that $25 credit... You apply it to your account, and it'll likely cover your first month. Because like the average Ting bill is $23
1: a month. You just get started at linux.ting.com. Well, bad news for anyone who was waiting for Firefox Send to come back. And even worse news if you also used Firefox Notes. Yeah, double whammy this week. Now Firefox Send
0: was my favorite of the recent tools when they looked like they were going into different service categories. And I think it it got a loyal audience. And I'd used it several times. But unfortunately, Mozilla writes, some abusive users were beginning to use Send to ship malware and conduct spear phishing attacks. So this summer, they took Send offline to address that, and they're just kind of leaving it offline. And I, I always wondered when they launched it,
1: how are they were going to solve this problem. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have to sign up or anything. It was so convenient to use. It just seemed obvious that it would be abused.
0: Now, it is an open source project, so someone may conceivably fork it. There are some neat like command line implementations already out there. And uh, I'll just give a friendly plug for Magic Wormhole, little little quick command line app that
1: I love to send files to folks just peer-to-peer. And Notes was a browser extension that you could use to sync text between your computer and your phone. And it was all encrypted and everything. And it was well-loved by a small number of people by the sounds of things, but I just don't think that it had the adoption to justify its existence which we have to expect to see more of this. As Mozilla have shed a bunch of staff, they're looking to cut costs. They're going to be casualties. It sort of makes sense, and I think is pretty
0: upfront about it in this post. They say it was essentially us working out our sync backend, and we needed a, we needed a project that wasn't people's super important passwords, <laughs> so it was Notes. But you know we figured out the tech, and now we don't really have the resources to run it. And I think it's pretty fair on that one. And and Send also in the grand scheme of things is it looks like a high cost, low return kind of project, and it's completely fair they killed it. One could argue maybe should never have launched, mm. but that's a separate discussion. And I would love to see some projects fork this and. People have their own self-hosted implementations of it. And then, you know, that's, that's not
1: a bad contribution to the world in the end. Yeah, we can add it to our self-hosted pocket instances. Oh, hang on. Still waiting for the source <laughs> code on that one. You know, they get a lot of goodwill with that one. But, you know, I've got a friend who's somewhat interested in Linux and hasn't quite made the switch yet. And he said to me that he used both of these and he was very annoyed that they were being shut down. And it was just, yeah, OK, thanks, Mozilla. Yet more disappointment.
0: Yeah, that's completely understandable from an end-user standpoint who's relying on this. I think what you're seeing here is Mozilla's had to make some hard choices, and we're still watching the fallout from that.
1: Yeah, and I think there's going to be a lot more hard choices to come. And ultimately, that's probably good. They should be focusing on their core products, the browser, maybe Thunderbird as well, and the products that are going to make the money, the services and everything. Not on all of these folly ideas, I suppose you could say, And I think there are going to be more casualties here as they realize that they have to cut costs and focus more. And ultimately, that's the only thing that's going to save them, I think, long term is focus. That's the scope of the problem we're talking about. It's not lost
0: on me. And it's not lost on Joe, that almost every week, there is another piece to the story about Mozilla on this show. And that's remarkable if you think about it that is the unwinding of a very complicated story that we are all seeing play out in front of us happening in real time and this is another piece in that chain and i suspect the links earlier made these links inevitable um it doesn't mean that firefox isn't still shipping in fact firefox 81 is now rolling out to
1: users of the play store on android yeah and this is something that you need to update to if you've been stuck on 68 Deliberately, because you know that a bunch of things have changed, and let's face it, they're not improvements. It's a bad idea to stick on 68. You need to update, because simply being connected to the same LAN as an attacker and having the browser open is enough to make you pretty vulnerable. Sticking
0: around on version 68, that's something
1: that people are doing on the Android platform right now? Yeah, there was a huge gap between Firefox 68 on Android and Firefox 79, where they were keeping 68 updated while they worked on 79, and then they dropped 79, and pretty much everyone hated it because they just pulled out all the features. And so, at least my understanding is there are a bunch of people who are still stuck on 68, kind of waiting for things to shake out a little bit, but really, you'd be foolish to do so now with this vulnerability out there.
0: Well, the developer that found this, Chris Mobley, has released a proof of concept. So there's that aspect of this as well, which means this is easier for malintended developers, let's say, to replicate. The target just simply has to have the Firefox application running on the phone. That's it. You don't need to access any malicious website. You don't have to click any malicious link. There's no man-in-the-middle application required. They can just simply be in a coffee shop, the classic cliche coffee shop, on the Wi-Fi, And the malicious intender can trick Firefox on your phone into triggering Android's intent URIs with zero user interaction. Now, the good news is Chris has already reported this issue directly to Mozilla, and it's encouraging to see that they responded right away. He writes they were quite pleasant to work with, providing some good info on where exactly they think the bug came from. And he goes on to say that if you find a Firefox bug, he definitely recommends sending it straight to them. He says the process was very easy, The team members are smart and friendly, and it was a good way to support the project, and it helped shape the way people use the web. That is great to hear that when Mozilla does find out about an issue, they seem to handle it with a lot of grace.
1: I'm not surprised to hear that at all. I've often heard a lot of good things about the people working at Mozilla.
0: Well, get ready to live with the new Microsoft Normal. They have submitted a series of patches to the Linux kernel, with the aim being to create a complete virtualization stack with Linux with the Microsoft Hypervisor. We're we're talking here Linux running in the root partition with direct access to hardware that doesn't require Windows for Hyper-V.
1: Yeah, these patches are just RFC, request for comments, at this stage. So this isn't happening just yet, but this is the very first beginnings of it. And as you say, this means that once all this gets pushed into the kernel, you won't have to have Windows on the root partition of Hyper-V. You can have a complete Linux stack asterisk apart from Hyper-V running on Azure or potentially other places like maybe Windows subsystem for Linux? Maybe.
0: Someone else interesting in this RFC is Microsoft's principal software engineer acknowledged publicly that, quote, we drew inspiration from the Zen code in Linux, noting that Hyper-V's architecture is more similar to Zen than it is to KVM. I just think that's noteworthy having that acknowledgement on the public record (laughs) that Zen inspired Hyper-V. And a lot of people
1: have good things to say about Hyper-V. Yeah, and it's yet more acknowledgement from Microsoft that Linux is very important. And we'll link to a register article about this. And there's something towards the end of it that really jumped out at me. And that was that Windows 10 is on a path to becoming a hybrid Windows slash Linux system. And it made me think about how years ago people would predict that the next version of Windows would be Linux-based, and they'd just cut away all the dead wood, all the old compatibility, kind of do an Apple, pretty much, and maybe have some sort of compatibility layer, but base their desktop on Linux. And I always thought, no, that's ridiculous. That couldn't happen. But the more I read about WSL2 and Azure and Hyper-V, the more I think that maybe, just maybe that is where they're going, but they're not going to do it overnight they're not going to have a big apple style reveal and that's it we're getting rid of x86 and going to arm and just deal with it over two years <laughs> it's going to be just creeping bit by bit they'll make the developer story better and better with the linux kernel and they'll put more and more stuff over to that until eventually the nt stuff will just fall by the wayside and you'll end up with a linux desktop i mean is is that crazy of me to think that
0: i think so I mean, I don't want to be the guy that was like, no, it's never going to happen, and then like in two years it happens. But I, I think this is all about Azure still. And yeah, these changes will definitely eventually trickle down to desktop Windows 10. But if you look at this, I believe what they are trying to do is solve a problem for Azure customers. And that is right now, if you go run VMs on Azure, even if they're Linux VMs, Underneath it all, they're running on a Windows box. And that ultimately has performance limitations, especially when you're trying to scale. And that is a limiting factor, I think, in my opinion, what do I know, for Azure. And now they can offer a, quote, complete virtualization stack with Linux, end quote. I think that's a key thing for them. And along with that, they've also ported Intel's open-source cloud hypervisor tool, which is a virtual machine monitor written in Rust that normally runs on KVM. But they've ported it over to Hyper-V, but it's early still. But I think it's an indicator of where their head is at with this, is they're looking at this very much from a services offering standpoint. I could see it trickling down all the way to desktop, but I don't know if it has as much practice there. Because in reality, you kind of achieve this with dual booting, (laughs) right? I mean, in a way. So I, I don't know for sure. I think it could indicate a future trend line, but I'm still not buying the rumor that one day we're going to see an official desktop Linux for Microsoft. I just, I, I think the GPL is not necessarily attractive to them in the desktop context. In the server-side development tools area, I, I think they're, they're comfortable with it now. I don't see that with them on the desktop yet. And going all Linux and shipping a Linux environment means touching
1: a lot of GPL code. Yes, but they're already doing that. They're already shipping Linux kernel updates via Windows update. Yeah. Because it's GPL2, not three. And maybe they were worried that it might switch over to three and that would cause them a lot more problems. But it's pretty clear that at least while Torvalds are still around, it's going to be GPL2. And I can't imagine the Linux Foundation wanting to go the, the GPL3 route. Yeah. And so that problem seems to be solved. And I'm not talking two years. That's ridiculous. I'm talking 10 plus years. I'm talking very, very slowly, piecemeal. Bit by bit, it starts to rely more and more on the Linux kernel. I, I don't know. I still think it's, it's unlikely, but it's, it seems that it's possible. It now looks like it's possible for the first time to me. And the question, I think, is what happens if the kernel team
0: says, nice, but no thanks? Will Microsoft run their own fork of the kernel? That seems like something they are capable of doing. They already do with Azure Sphere. So perhaps they would do this for Azure virtualization options, as there would just be a Microsoft kernel. And, and you're right, Joe. Like At that point, they're so deep into GPL code that I think my concern may not be founded, because they're about as GPL-y as it's going to get
1: now. <laughs> they're right in there with the kernel, you know? I don't think that these patches will be rejected. Because as long as it doesn't affect anything else, then it doesn't really matter. And as long as the code is up to scratch and Microsoft's got enough experience now with dealing with Torvald's Zen team, I don't think that that's going to be a problem. Right. And they're a
0: valuable member of the Linux Foundation, which pays a couple of those paychecks on yep. the Linux kernel team. Uh, and I think it's a clever strategy to go in and say, it's a lot like Zen. It's, you know, it's it's like Zen, but with some differences. <laughs>
1: yeah, I suppose.
0: And whatever happens with that story and everything else we've been tracking this week, we'll keep you updated. We'll keep an eye on it. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get this particular show, but maybe even better yet, go get the all Jupiter Broadcasting Shows feed. You can get it on the main site or just search in your podcast client. Not only do you get this show, but anything new we launch, you'll get it there first.
1: And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at chrislast.com. And you can find me at joelrest.com. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.